Kelly. <clears throat> uh, good morning. I'm Matt. Great to be with you this morning. Cool. Hey, a little activity for you. Can you grab your phone out for me? Open up notes. Do something for the teacher here today, all right? Um, open up notes or maybe you've got a notepad with you today. You could use that as well. I just want you to write down one thing that's been encouraging to you. Maybe somebody said something to you in the last week, month, year, 10 years, lifetime. Um, just anything. Could be something small. Maybe you just remember who it was. You don't remember what they said. Just put their name down. Maybe just write down an encouragement that you've received. Can be hard to think of, can't it? <laughs> Maybe for some of you it's easy. Any more time? I'll take that as a yes. Cool. We'll come back to those in a moment. Um, recently, the staff team have been doing some of those personality tests um, where you work out what kind of personalities you are so that you can work out how to relate and work together better. We've been doing the Enneagram. We've also been doing the Myers-Briggs type indicator. I found out that I am an ENFP. Anyone know what that is? doesn't matter if you don't know what the letters are, but... Um, Basically, it's referred, the ENFP type is referred to as the optimist. It's actually the case that I could be INFP, and they're referred to as the dreamer. So what I contribute to our team is I'm an optimistic dreamer. Um, this is very true for me. If you, if you come to me and you're like, Matt, there is an urgent life-threatening problem, I start getting excited. And I'm, I'm like, oh, what opportunities are going to come out of this? I'll actually start to think, I wonder if you're just trying to make my day. Like maybe you really like me. Um, my wife can attest to this. We'll be staying in a hotel or something or a campsite and something about our site or our room will go wrong. And my first thought is literally, I bet we're going to get an upgrade or maybe a free breakfast. Um, if, you have, if, if you come to me and you say, hey, Matt, there's this thing about you that's personal. It's like a personal habit that you have, Matt, that really annoys me, I'll start to think, I think our relationship's starting to go somewhere. Such is the optimistic dreamer that I am. Um, but here's, here's the crazy thing about that, um, and that is this. Even if you're a crazy optimist like me, when you hear the words that Grant read out to us last week from the author and pastor Tim Chalice, um, you resonate with them. I resonate with them. Here are his words. He says, There are not many of us in this world who are at risk of drowning in an ocean of encouragement, of being swept away by a tsunami of cheer, of being pulled under by great waves of comfort. There are not many who receive so much encouragement that they never have reason to feel doubts, never have reason to grow weary, never have reason to be tempted towards despondency. I tell you, as I hear those words, I start getting emotional. I'm like, yeah, 
I need that. Even me, the optimistic dreamer. And here's the thing. I think we all resonate with it, whether we've had an easy life so far or we know we've had a pretty hard life. Whether you're an ENFP or an ISFJ, let the reader understand. We all resonate with this because life isn't just suffering, and it is. Like Grant pointed out last week, like the Bible pointed out, like George Orwell pointed out to us last week, life is suffering and you will have to deal with that. But for the Christian, to add to suffering, life is warfare. Life is warfare. The Christian life is war. You're in a war zone. To put it in the ancient Christian language, it's a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're up against it. You feel that, don't you? Amongst friends, maybe over the weekend, you spend some time with friends, a discussion, a topic comes up, and you think, gosh, if I was really to throw in right now my thoughts on this subject, what I really believed as a Christian about this, I reckon I'd be made to feel like an enemy. I reckon I'd have more enemies than friends. Or perhaps it's um, a desire within you And you know, if you just gave in to that desire, it might feel really good. But it would not be really good for you. You're in a fight. Or maybe it's like you're just trying to live a simple life, follow God, love His people, and just everything seems to be wrong. Everything seems to be going against you. There is an enemy. You know that. And so I reckon if you've been in the Christian fight For more than a minute, you know you need strength. You need encouragement. You need resource. You need cheer. You need a cheer squad. And so today, with our Bibles open at 1 Thessalonians 5, I want to explore with you uh, encouragement. I want to ask four questions this morning. Firstly, why do we need encouragement? We've started talking about that, but we'll explore a bit more. What is encouragement? How does it work? And finally, how do you encourage someone when you're not feeling it? How do you do it when you're not feeling it? Is that all right? Four things. First one, why do you need it? Why do you need encouragement? I mean, you know you do, but how do you know you do? Well, there's two things in the first part of this passage that show us why we need it. And the first thing is that you need it. You're different. You're different. You're different. Uh, Paul is writing to a small little new church in a city called Thessalonia. No, Thessalonica. You've got to add the C in there, or the K if you're Greek. Uh, K, of course it's a K, Kappa. Anyway, who cares? Um, basically, Thessalonica is the capital of modern-day Greece at the time. It's the most populous city Uh, It's a city, because of where it's located, it's a flourishing center for business and trade and philosophy and thinking. Um, It was a free city in the Roman world, which was pretty unique in that it had no military uh, occupation or oppression. They had tax concessions. It was pluralistic. You could um, worship many different gods, etc. It had cultural diversity. It was a big, buzzing, pluralistic city. And Paul's writing to a church there that he's basically planted over three weekends before he gets um, brought before the city authorities and removed from Thessalonica because of sedition to Caesar, because he says, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The church is paid to, made to pay a fine for the city's troubles. And so Paul's writing to them from a distance, and he's writing to them because they're a group that are experiencing persecution, pressure from the world, temptation, 
And he writes to remind them persecution, temptation, hardship, difficulty, discouragement is all normal for Christians. It's normal for you. Why? Because you're different. You're different. Have a look at chapter 5, verse uh, 5. He writes here, You are all, speaking to Christians, children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, listen to this, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake. This is basically a metaphor to say that because you're in the light, because you have heard the message about Jesus, you know what he's done for you, you know he's coming back, uh, you don't have to live like everyone else is who are sleepwalking in the dark. You're children of the day, and so you can live in the light. You live differently. You are different. You're a creature of the day. So you, you come out in the day. You live in the daylight. And actually, he names several things concretely throughout the book that that looks like for you and me, for the Christian. Um, I've put a table together because I love tables. But there's heaps of, um, heaps of these examples. He says this, live lives worthy of God. Don't be moved by affliction. He says, love everyone more. He says, avoid sexual immorality. Learn to control your body. He says, my favorite, he says, oh, live in peace with others. Be patient with everyone. Don't repay evil with evil. Abstain from every evil. Have you ever really noticed um, those things are different to what the world, the flesh, and the devil tell you? And if you're doing those things, you're finding life hard, I presume, because it's against the flow. The world, the flesh, and the devil says, don't live a life worthy of God. Who cares what somebody else thinks? You're the boss. Don't be moved by suffering. No, like, get out. Don't put up with anything. Love everyone more. Love's a feeling. Love who you want. Do whatever you feel. The more famous you are, the less you have to work, the better. Live in peace with others. Say what you want. Be patient with everyone. No, don't let anyone slow you down. Don't repay evil with evil. You know, give as much as you get. Abstain from every evil. Don't worry, no one will ever find out. If, if you're a Christian, you're in a fight. You're going against the flow. That's your battle. You're living differently. And that's just the first part of it. The second part of it and that Paul raises, the reason why you need encouragement, is because Paul says it's not going to get any easier for you. This is a super fun sermon to preach. Um, it's, not, it's not fun, but it is good for us. He says it's not going to get any easier. Have a look at uh, verse 1 at the top there. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know, some Christians will try and tell you it's really important that you figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back, as if that will help you. Paul's pretty clear, isn't he? It's like, it's impossible to know when Jesus is coming back. A thief in the night, I don't know whether you've ever had a thief in the night. If you have had a thief in the night, I don't imagine you got a text message saying, my estimated time of arrival is, you know, here I am. A thief in the night doesn't do that. So what's important about the second coming, it's, it's about, as we get closer to it, Time's going to get difficult. That's what Paul says again and again in other parts of his writings. He says, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because in the last days there will be times of difficulty. And it will just increase in difficulty. It's not going to, I often think, you know, we think 
if we all vote in the same direction, if more people become Christians, life's going to get easier for us as Christians. Newsflash, or maybe I should say in our day and age, um, push notification. It's not going to get any easier for you. The Christian life is not going to get any easier for you. You know what that is like. You're experiencing this right now. You know, in a, a society that's becoming less and less Christian, there's passive pressure on us. There's active pressure on Christians. Passive pressure, the fact that you cannot turn on a TV show. I reckon there's two TV, TV shows, actually, that don't do this. Antiques Roadshow and The Chosen. You, both very good shows, right? You can't turn on the TV without feeling like your worldview as a Christian is at best naive and at worst evil. It it makes it very difficult to to be okay with being a Christian. There's passive pressure like that every day, everywhere you look. I don't fit in. But then there's the more active, public, vocal, um, legal pressure that I'm sure many of you have experienced where you know, maybe it's you don't join in on something that your team is doing, your workplace is doing, and people maybe notice and they, they isolate you, they shove you out, they force you out. Maybe you know if you don't opt in, you're at risk of losing your job, um, at family, at risk of losing friendship. There's active pressure like that. I don't think we should be surprised that the Apostle Paul, in response to the kind of life that we experience here, says you need armor. That's what he says. He says you need armor. Often I shirk away from the military language um, that you often find in the Bible because I think, oh, maybe it's a first century, you know, mishap. It, 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 you know, military, you know, blah, blah, blah. But actually I think it's the perfect metaphor. Um, you know those movies where I love these kind of movies? It's like this young person, let's imagine this young girl is being recruited, she doesn't know, but for like the CIA or the MI6 or, it's MI6, right? Or MI5, MI6, yeah. Like the next James Bond, whatever. Yeah, John T's just shrugging you off. I've got it all wrong. Um, you know, to become a secret agent or something. And she walks into this room and um, she has no idea what's going on, but they hand her a, a SWAT outfit. You know, a big helmet and a big armor. It's like, what are these for? It's an indication of what's to come, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is walking into the room and he's passing you a helmet and he's passing you something to protect your vital organs, your heart. And he's saying, put these on. You're going to need them. It's not going to get any easier. So this is why you need it. That's why you need encouragement because you're in a war zone. You're called to be different. It's hard. It's not going to get any any easier. You need encouragement. We need it. You know that. But what is encouragement then? What is it? What is encouragement? Well, the first thing to say is that every Christian is called to encourage. Every one of us is called to encourage. Where do I get that? The Apostle Paul writes at the end of this passage, therefore, encourage one another. Literally, encourage one the one. He's saying encouragement is not the responsibility of, of a select few, but the privilege of every member, of every Christian. Encouragement is your job. It's not something for leaders. It's not just something for those who feel like it or are gifted at it. It's for all of us. Um, But what is it? How do we encourage? 
Oh yeah, I'll go back. That's good. This is my next point. I think the Apostle Paul um, actually gives us another term here to help us understand what encouragement actually is. The word encourage in, in French literally means to put courage into something. Um, in the Greek, it's parakaleo. It means to call to one side or to comfort or to cheer, you know, to have someone right here next to you. Um, but Paul gives us this word to build each other up. And I think he's just using the words interchangeably to help us understand what encouragement means, um, what it is. And I've got this definition here. It's not there. Cool. It's this. Metaphorically, it was used in the first century, the word to build one another up. It literally means to build a house, but it was also used metaphorically. And it's this. To improve the ability to function, to improve the ability to function in living responsibly and effectively. It's to strengthen someone, to make someone more able. I borrowed a few definitions. I found writing down what encouragement is one of the hardest things I've ever done. You know, you know when you're encouraged, don't you? You know when you're not encouraged. But it's very hard to put your finger on what is encouragement. So I read a book that had a title called Encouragement. And it was done by two um, clinical psychologists, award-winning authors and Christian counselors, so I thought they had something to say. Here's a couple of definitions I just want to throw at you. you. Just You don't have to pick up every little detail. There's a common thread. They say this. This is Lawrence Crabb and Dan Allender. Encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian even when life is rough. Encouragement is to say and do things that stimulate others to a deeper appreciation of Christ and to a stronger commitment to our relationship with Him and to one another. Encouragement is the careful selection of words that are intended to influence another person meaningfully toward increased godliness. Um, My wife gave me some great feedback after the first sermon this morning. She's like, Matt, there's a common thread in all of that. And the, the common thread is we're building one another up in Christ. In Christ. There's a deeper appreciation for Christ. It's toward increased godliness. It's um, making someone want to be a better Christian, a better Christ follower. It's building someone up in Christ. But I, I just want to zoom out. That's really helpful, I think. If you're doing that, you're encouraging someone. I want to zoom out and just think, how does encouragement actually work, though? How does it work in the human heart? What, what, you know, I like to think of things like that, right? Is it like, what's the little machine? What levers are being pulled to make me be lifted up? Does that make sense? How does encouragement actually work? How do you say something to someone that makes them, what is it about what you say that makes them, ah, thanks, I can do this. It cheers them up. Makes them feel some courage. Um, Crab and Allender, they sum it up like this. They say, if the motive of the encourager is love and the target is fear, the words will be encouraging. If the, if the encourager is like, I want to love this person, and they're understanding someone's need, someone's fear, and responding to it, facing that fear with them, whatever happens, it'll, it'll be encouraging. I think that's really 
helpful. And actually, I think we see that with what Paul's doing right here in 1 Thessalonians. I thought I'd just have to jump out of the Bible for a moment, but it's happening right here. Is it a motive of love? Paul is writing a letter to the Thessalonians. I don't know about you. Have you ever received a letter from a friend in the mail? Like a physical letter or an email you know, or a text? I think a letter is perhaps the universal love language. You know, maybe we're losing it in our day and age with the advent of this thing. But, you know, an email, uh, some, Paul's writing to them. And we know that he cares for them. He hasn't forgotten about them. He's writing to them. Elsewhere in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, the only thing that makes life worth living for me is knowing that you're doing good. Paul says that. He loves them. The motive is love. What else is happening here? He targets their fear. Not only does he love them, he speaks to their fear. You know, they're worried in this chapter we've just read about the second coming. They're not sure. They can be sure of God's feeling towards them. And he says, don't worry, don't be afraid. Yes, you did deserve God's anger, but because you've accepted what Jesus has done for you on the cross, he's taken God's wrath in your place, God's not angry with you anymore. He's addressing their fear. He, oh, did I have it right there? It's not there. In verse 9, he says, God did not appoint us to suffer anger. God's chosen you to receive his love. He addresses their fear. And so this, the essence of encouragement is right here in this text. It comes from a place of love. It's attentive to someone's needs and their fear. It addresses a fear. I just wonder if you look back, maybe you need to scroll back or find your notes. I asked you to write down a piece of encouragement. I want you to see whether, this is not a magic trick, but I want you to see whether or not the motive of love is present in it and whether they're helping you address a fear. Just have a look at it. Have a look at it for a moment. Maybe you knew the person. You will most likely, I reckon if we did a show of hands, most likely 90% of you would be like, I knew the person really well. And secondly, they're probably speaking to a fear. Um, mine was something like this. A friend of mine years ago said to me, Matt, I don't know why you don't go for that job because I think you're really good at that stuff. This is my best friend. And he was talking about a fear that I have of not knowing whether I'm any good at something. I didn't end up going for the job, but it was an encouraging thing to say. Motive of love helps me with a fear. So that's what encouragement is. That's kind of how it works. How do we do it? I know that's fairly cerebral and maybe above what you're expecting today. But let's dig down then. How, how do you do it? What's the practical application? How do you encourage? You know, one of my prayers for this sermon um, was that I did not want you to leave the building without some new tools in your toolkit of encouragement. I was like, it's got to be practical. You've got to leave having some new tools, something strange, maybe, maybe something familiar, maybe something new, hopefully. Um, but before I do that, I just want to cast some vision to you. Is that okay? I, just wanna, I want you to imagine what our church could be like. In staff meeting, Monday morning, the first thing we do is we come to work, heaps of stuff to do. We sit around and we cast vision to one another. And we say this, we get one another's attention by saying, guys, 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 just to make sure everyone's got my eyes, guys. And we say, imagine, and all, all of a sudden you're there, that right side of your brain is big, it's ready to go. Imagine. 
Imagine if every single Sunday, every single person left church feeling better than how they arrived. Imagine if every single Sunday, every single person left feeling more encouraged to live out their faith more faithfully throughout the week. Imagine if every single week, every single person came to church thinking, I wonder who God has for me to encourage today. Can you imagine being a part of a church like that? So how do we do it? How do you and I do that? Well, I've got two principles for you and about 20 tips. You okay? Everyone's looking at the time. They're like, we don't have time for 20 tips. Let me just check. Um, no, we don't. Uh, let me give you two principles and then two tips for each. I'll save you 18 tips. Two principles. And these are actually the two biggest fears that you can address in someone's life. This is how you, the principles of how you can do encouragement when you walk out into the foyer today. The first thing is encouragement is about acceptance. And secondly, encouragement is about significance. If you can show someone that they are accepted without judgment, and if you can show someone that they have value add in your life, in someone's life, they will feel encouraged. That's the principles. The biblical principles, by the way, the way God has made us is for relationship. We just want to know we're welcomed. We don't need to know much as humans. We just need to know we're accepted. God didn't just make us for relationship. He made us to, to cultivate the ground, to work. People need to know that they're contributing. And Paul does it right here. I feel pains to show you that I'm still in the Bible here. But Paul shows the Thessalonians that they're accepted. How does he do that? By listening to their fear. This whole chapter is actually him just saying, hey, it sounds like you're feeling scared about the end times. I know it's hard, isn't it? This is first century active listening at its best. That's what Paul's doing in chapter 5, the whole thing. It's him hearing their need. He's accepting them without judgment. I hear you. It's tough. It's hard. But secondly, he shows them their significance. I think this is really interesting. Um, at the very end of verse 11 here, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Why that little line, just as, in fact, you're doing? It feels kind of throwaway. Like if you crossed out, would Paul's message still say the same thing? The answer is no, because he's showing them, he's encouraging them by showing them they're already contributing. Just as, in fact, you're already doing. Guys, you're great at encouraging one another. Keep it up. He's showing them that they're significant. They matter. So if you can show someone that they're accepted unconditionally, however they're coming at you, and that they matter, you will encourage them. So how do you do that? Can I give you just, I'd love to give you 20 tips. I had this whole sketch where I got Grant up and we did some body language stuff together, yada, yada. It's fun, but maybe another day. I'll give you two tips, two things. To show someone they're accepted, just listen. That's probably my biggest, maybe I'll just give you one tip. Just listen. Just listen. Did you hear me? What did I say? Just listen. You know what that means? Don't talk. <laughs> it also means don't one-up their issue. Somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, I'm really stressed about something. I had such a stressful week. 
They're like, oh, you think you're stressed. You should hear my stress. Oh, they'll feel so... No, they won't. Just listen. Don't one up. Don't give advice. Don't give quick advice, at least. Don't say anything. It's like, all people need to hear is they're accepted. Don't even talk. Okay, if you have to talk, try this out. Just reflect back to them exactly the words that you hear. Exactly the words that you hear. Exactly the words that you hear, right? If someone says, John T says to me, hey, Matt. I was like, hey, John, how's your week? Oh, Matt, it's pretty busy. Yeah, yeah, it's just been, just been flat out, pretty busy week. He's screaming at me that his life is busy. If I just say back to him, hey, Johnny, it sounds like you're pretty busy. Oh, gosh. He's going to feel so much acceptance and love in that moment. I, yeah, he's like, yeah. It's been a busy week. Oh, you've been on holiday. How, right, yeah, okay. How was your holiday? It's good. It wasn't busy. Sounds like you're really good. You haven't been busy at all. It was fun. You're feeling really accepted. That's good. Just listen. That's one tip, all right? And sometimes the encouragement is done there, done and dusted. You can walk away from Jonty in that moment. You're done. He has been encouraged today. You do nothing else. You've acted like Christ. You've listened to him. He's shared something with you. Just walk away. You're done. You don't need to give advice to be encouraging, okay? Tell one another that later. You don't need to give advice. Just walk away. Okay, how do you make someone feel like they're significant? That's accepted. You listen, repeat what they say. Trust me, they won't even notice if you repeat verbatim what they've said. They won't know. They'll just be like, oh, yeah, Matt, here's me. And just have a stab if you're like, oh, crap, I forgot what he said. Just have a stab, and then he'll correct you. It'll be okay. Second thing, how do you make someone feel significant? How do you make someone feel like they, they, they matter, they're contributing? Let me just give you some examples. This is about just noticing their impact on the world and reflecting it back to them, sharing it to them. John T, <laughs> your smile means so much to me. I love it when you nod in my sermons. <laughs> that just happened then. And he's encouraged. Um, the, the way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your friends, such an encouragement to me. I wish I was a friend like that. I wish I was a spouse like that. That's another way. Let me give you a third one. Your consistency in your faith is so helpful. Like it gives me so much hope. You know, just there you go. All you've done, you just noticed little basic things about what someone's done. You've told them about their impact on you or someone else. And if you can make someone feel accepted, feel valuable, boom, you've nailed it. You're an encourager. I'm skipping over the 20 others. Um, can I leave you with one little more thought here on um, this idea of building? We're building one another up. There's a, a building, a construction site next to my house at the moment. This is literally out my living room window. The one good thing about this is I can use it as a sermon illustration. And I'll have some new neighbors in a year's time. I don't know. The thing I've noticed about building is that um, it just happens one small task at a time. 
like a million little tasks. And if you were to focus on any one little task, it wouldn't look like much was happening. Sometimes shovel just, sometimes dirt just gets shoveled from one place to another, and you're like, what was the point in that day? A million little tasks. But here's the thing. In order to build one another up, to strengthen one another, to draw one another um, closer to Christ, to help one another become more like who God has called them to be, to build them up, you have to go to work on it every day. You just have to do those little tasks. It's a job you just have to go to work at every day. It takes turning up again and again and again. And the secret, just keep at it. Just keep at it. And sure enough, one day it will be built through a million little things. Look, church is a workplace. And we're working here. We're building one another up. So finally, how do you do it when you're not feeling it? I imagine some of you are sitting there going, yes, Matt, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I just, I don't care. Or I can't do it. My tank's not full. I don't get encouragement, so why should I give encouragement? All of us go through seasons in life where it's like, my tank's empty. Let me say this. The encourager will always find themselves pouring out more than they find themselves being poured into by others. Always. It's a lonely task. It's a lonely job. You will always find yourself pouring out more than you're being poured into. But half the solution is recognizing that the encouragement you need, the encouragement that will fill you up, doesn't come from the other people in the room. Encouragement helps build one another up, but it isn't what fills your tank. It's not going to complete the building. The church, the people here cannot fill your tank. It's not their job. They can't give you the acceptance that you need, the significance that you need. But there is one who can. There is a person who can fill you up each and every day. One of the um, greatest moments in the Lord of the Rings, and I use this illustration because um, Toby loves Lord of the Rings, and often I feel like he feels isolated when he shares all these Lord of the Rings stuff, and it's like most of us just, and I'm like, Toby, I've read two-thirds of the Lord of the Rings, so I can share it with you. He's not even in the room to feel it, but, you know. Um, but this illustration works, I think. Someone else used it, and it worked on me. So I was like, well, I'll share that. In the Lord of the Rings, in the third book, um, Eowyn, or Eowyn uh, is defending her uncle Theoden from a Nazgul that has a witch king rider on it. Have I lost you? Toby would have loved that. He would have loved that. Here's how the book reads. And, and Mary, a little hobbit, uh, is watching on. You know, I find it very fascinating that Tolkien decided to use hobbits um, through a hobbit's perspective for us to see the world. Because often I feel like we're just two feet tall. We're halflings when it comes to the fears we're facing. And so there's a hobbit watching this scene go on. And here's how the book reads. A cold voice answered, Come not between the Nazgul and his prey. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour, the strangest. The clear voice was like the ring of steel. But I am no man, am I? You look upon a woman, ere when I am, Eamon's daughter. You stand between me and my Lord and King. Begone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. 
very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. A sword was in her hand and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Pity filled Mary's heart and great wonder and suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. And Mary raises his sword and jumps in and fights for Eowyn in that moment. What gave Mary the courage when he didn't have it? It was seeing another's act of courage and being amazed by it, being in awe of it. In verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes, there's Mary, look at him down there watching on. Verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says in verse 10, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. He died for us. In the greatest act of courage, Jesus Christ gave up his life for us, experiencing God's anger so you and, I, you and I never have to, experiencing rejection so that you could be accepted, experiencing loneliness so you'd never have to be alone, experiencing humility and shame and vulnerability and exposure so you, would, so you can be seen as significant in the eyes of God. He did it for you and so you can be amazed and the slow kindled courage of your race can awoke within you, can awaken within you. Listen, we live in a frightening, hard, painful, discouraging world. Every message is something like, you're not good enough. You're not the right kind of person. You're a failure. You're not acceptable. You're not worth anything. Jesus frees us, validates us, pours into us, and fills up that cup that we have to be accepted and to be significant. And only he does that. Only he can. And so daily you must return to him to his great act of courage, to be truly encouraged so that you can give courage. Be loved so you can love and serve others in their fears. Can I pray for us? Let me pray. Courageous God, may we be so amazed by your courage for us, so healed by it, so transformed by it, so filled up by it, Um, so delivered by it that our fears are insignificant to us and and you are more real and real to us than them. Lord, help us. Give us this attentiveness to what Christ has done or in what he's done that we might continue to build others up just as in fact we're doing. We pray this in his name. Amen.